Hi, welcome back to another episode of 24-Hour Video Podcast. I am your host, Jason Green. My guest on this episode is editor, writer, journalist, podcaster, Jesse Pearson. For eight years in the early 2000s, Jesse was the editor-in-chief of Vice magazine. It's hard to imagine now, but this was pre-Vice Vice. There was no TV channel, there was no Rupert Murdoch, no pretending to be actual news. At that point, it was just a magazine, but this is when magazines still mattered. And Vice, at that time defined and was defined by a very particular aesthetic of early aughts Williamsburg in Brooklyn, New York. Now, again, if you know the area, it's hard to imagine, but this is pre-Williamsburg, Williamsburg. There was no Whole Foods. There was no Apple store. They had a bar named Cokies that sold cocaine, and there was one Thai restaurant with a boat hanging from the ceiling, Planet Thai, rest in peace. It was that Williamsburg. The vice office was in a tiny space on North 4th Street between Barry and Wythe, or Wythe and Kent, I can't remember exactly. But that particular block and street was mainly known for prostitution, a place to shoot and buy heroin, and a guy named The King who would shadow box on the street all day in a ring he drew out of chalk. My band's practice space uh, was in the basement of that building. This is Panthers. We shared it with Black Dice, The Rapture, and Animal Collective. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of broken didgeridoos and toy pianos in there. Down the hall was uh, Interpol. So it was that Williamsburg. I'm not trying to wax poetic here or romanticize a period that involved Electro Clash and American Apparel shorts. I'm just trying to paint a picture. Jesse was at the helm of what was probably one of the more influential magazines at that precise moment. Jesse left Vice in 2010, right before the whole thing changed, and he started his own project, Apology Magazine. I guess I would call Apology a literary journal, although it's much more than that. In his editor's notes in the first issue, he explains the name. He says, It's my apologia against what I see as the problematic state of magazines today, both big and small. Am I being coy by not naming names? Yes, and I apologize for that. He got more specific in a 2013 New York Times article saying, It's me apologizing for having been part of this culture that rose out of Williamsburg around the early 2000s. It's me wanting to move away from that, to kind of make amends for what that was all about. Apology was decidedly different. I mean, it was him. It was 100% his point of view. It's more earnest, truly curious about culture and the world. 
His interviews would go to epic lengths, meandering and capturing conversation that was often surprising and always compelling. And this, he seamlessly transitioned into the accompanying podcast for Apology, which is also called Apology. In interest of full disclosure, uh, Jesse and I went to college together, Hampshire College, uh, which I think their slogan is no grades, no shoes, no problem. A super hippie liberal arts school, very cultural theory heavy. They didn't have grades. You made your own majors. Uh, one kid graduated by recreating a parliament funkadelic concert in a yurt uh, in uh, the center green. So it's, it's that kind of place. Jesse was a few years older than me, and he was cool. I don't really know how else to say it. We had these on-campus apartments that we could live in, and I remember his being always dark and smoke-filled, although I'm pretty sure it was probably just normal. And he always dated the most beautiful girls, and he listened to music I wouldn't understand until years later. When I moved to New York, Jesse let me write snarky music reviews for Vice. He always seemed light years ahead of other people I knew at the time. This is one of his many superpowers, taste. It's such an ephemeral and difficult thing to define, but he just has it. And he also has a really generous way of sharing it with people. The magazine really reflects his own idiosyncratic interests, and he just trusts that if he likes it, you might like it too. And the podcast is another great example of that. He just picks people he finds interesting and talks to them about books. Sound familiar? I was struggling to do a film podcast, trying to recruit directors and actors to talk about their craft, barf, fucking kill me. But then I listened to Apology, and I thought, fuck it. Just talk to people you like about movies. I truly would not be making this podcast if it wasn't for Jesse and the Apology podcast. This was such a fun conversation, and you will hear even as an interviewee, he manages to guide and invigorate the conversation throughout. I mean, I could barely find spots to put in musical breaks. We were just having a really great conversation. And I could listen to him talk about anything, honestly. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy talking to him. So here it is, episode three of 24-Hour Video with Jesse Pearson. Enjoy. 24-Hour Video. It's fantastic. Yeah. You did, didn't you do some of that work as well? Didn't you write something for, have you done no. that? Not for Criterion. No? Um, I did a lot of, I've done a lot of like sort of film curating, not for a while, but there was a time in, I guess, the late 2010s when I was curating film screenings for at Lincoln Center. And so I would write a little essay to go along with those that I think they would put on their websites. Um, and those were really fun. God, I hadn't even thought about those um, in, in, before talking to you. Um, we, did, uh, we did Over the Edge. And oh, yeah. I got... I got the entire cast and the director there, except for Matt Dillon for like a Q and A right. afterward. That wow. was awesome. How did you get hooked up with doing that? Was that through your work advice or was it? Yeah, I think it was probably because of vice. There was this guy who was there. I think he's not there anymore. You know, cause uh, the Lincoln center film program was linked to some film magazine film comment, I think was like, it's like yeah. sister organization. Right. Yeah. There's a guy named Chris, and I can't remember his last name. I think it might have been Chang or something like that. He was friends with a producer at Vice, um, one of our film producers at Vice, and she introduced us. And then I think he was like, you know, he thought I might have some some sort of perspective that was different from what they usually brought there. So, did you do sort of themed screenings? How to what 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 was the setup? I, you know, I did purely selfish screenings. I did things that I wanted to see um, on the big screen, like favorites, like really, like you know, like essentials to me. Um, and then also, if, if if there was an element of like bringing some 
kind of people involved with it afterward um, to talk to. That was even better. So yeah, Over the Edge, um, Out of the Blue, those are the two. And their titles always kind of felt kind of the same to me. But those are two, as you know, like really seminal, like when you're like a punk kid. Those movies yeah. are pretty essential. Out of the Blue, I almost got, I almost got Linda Manns to come. Oh, um, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> Well, it was a whole thing, man. Because uh, you know, uh, she passed away not long ago. I guess R.I.P. Yeah. Definitely, was, she was like, this year. I think, yeah, yeah. I think so, just last year. Like the greatest actress, yeah. man. God, yeah. um, Days of Heaven is just like one of the her performance in that is one of my favorite performances of all time. But um, she's amazing. Yeah, I, so she she lived in Palmdale, which I don't know if you know Palmdale, but it's like in the Inland Empire out here in the LA area. It's um, okay. You know, it's 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 not. It's not, I wouldn't, if Disneyland is the happiest place on earth, this is not that. Like, this is something else, you know? <laughs> and the deal with her was I, she didn't have a home phone. So I had to call a local gas station and leave a message. Wow. And then I guess when she came in for like groceries or smokes, they would tell her. And so I, I eventually got to her on the phone and she said, yeah, I'll come to New York. Um, two conditions. I got to bring my husband. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Um, and I have to come by bus. I won't fly. Wow. And I was like, yeah, okay, like, definitely, whatever it takes, you know. Um, but then I think, you know, she became harder to reach, and she kind of chickened out, and the timing got weird. Um, so that was, like, very much a dream deferred. Although one other little thing I could mention that is a dream that came true was um, a friend of mine owns Linda Manz's jacket that she wore in Out of the Blue. Wow. How did that happen? She's an actress. It's Chloe Seventy, so she's an actress too. And I don't oh, know yeah. how. Maybe through the Gummo connection, she got to, um, right, you know, because right. Linda Mans was in Gummo too, and Chloe was yeah. in that, but also did the costumes for it. So I don't know. She got a hold of this jacket, and I got to like, I got to hold it, you know, and like touch it, and it was yeah. like fucking goosebumps. Like this thing is so beautiful, it's so tiny. For some, for the listeners who might not know, out of the blue. Tell us a little bit about the, the film. Um, well, it's directed by Dennis Hopper. It's what, late 70s? And mm-hmm. it's about a young girl named Cece Barnes, or C.B. Barnes, C.B. Barnes, um, who is, you know, living a pretty, like, lower class, like, white trash, for lack of a better phrase, existence. And I can say that because I am one. And um, her father is also played by Dennis Hopper. He like gets out of jail and um, it's just about their sort of like horrible struggle as father and daughter. And she's a burgeoning punk. Um, She's really into Sid Vicious and she's really into Elvis. And um, it's a, it's a very, it's a violent, harsh movie, um, but it's got a lot of great like sort of transcendent moments in it. So like she runs away from home at one point, right? It's in the Pacific Northwest somewhere, I think, but she ends up in Canada I think because she plays a show with that, that punk band, I think were they from Vancouver? Maybe, I don't know, but the pointed sticks, remember them? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so she plays with them and she gets to like play drums with them and it's a really beautiful moment, but um, the film definitely doesn't end well. Uh, it's very tragic. <laughs> it's got a lot of good Neil Young songs on, on the soundtrack, as you might know, out of the blue is, mm-hmm. you know, Neil Young reference. Um, it's just like one of those, it's one of those films that, um, everybody has to see i think it's got like one it's got only one moment that i think is a big misstep in it for me and that's when she like ends up at this like red light hotel like in somewhere in like maybe vancouver and like i like all that stuff because it's very seedy and cheesy um no no seedy not cheesy but then what's cheesy is hopper uses this song on the soundtrack that's got these weird lyrics about like when you're at the blue hotel it's like this weird like too literal and i don't know why that always takes me out of it but other than that perfect film 
perfect. Yeah, I, 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 I would concur with that for sure. So you, you, you're, you're saying that you can uh, relate to some degree. Uh, where did you grow up? Oh, I mean, I'm being a little bit flippant, but I grew up, I, I mean, I'm, I'm from like a pretty, yeah, I'm from like a lower middle class, like working class background. You know, everybody in my family were steel workers. I grew up outside um, uh, Philadelphia in the suburbs and various suburbs in Jersey and, and PA. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, we're a little off topic, but if you don't mind, I mean, I can, I just, I just remember that we went to college together, which I kind of forget yeah. sometimes because we have this whole other life where we got to know each other, like in, in yeah. Brooklyn and stuff. But um, there was a class I took, right, in college called like whiteness. And um, it was taught by the, remember Bethany Ogden, that professor that we had, who was yeah. like this, like the great, like the cultural studies professor. So there was this mm -hmm. moment in that class where she was like, okay, everybody list up on the, tell me things that you associate with white trash and I'm going to write them down up here. And everybody just kind of rattled off like my family, you know? <laughs> teenage mother parents in jail this drug that drug trailer park uh you know uh food stamps and i and i kind of like i had this like kind of like revelatory moment that led me to kind of like look for you know look for representations of of poor white people in films and stuff a lot part of my like final i wrote a few papers to, to finish at hampshire but one of them was in part about um like the representation of um of the villain in cape fear um, mostly in the Martin Scorsese version, you know, the, you know, um, De Niro playing yeah. him. What was it Max? Was mm -hmm. it Kate? Was it whatever Max his name Katie. was? Max Katie. Yeah. Max Katie. Yeah. And he's like the ultimate, like white trash, like virulent sex animal and not, he's super dangerous, but also super sexually, you know, attractive. And I, I, and it was, it's pretty ripe stuff. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, I, well, we can jump around a bit. Cause I did want to talk to you about Hampshire college specifically. Um, and your experience there and also kind of because basically when I, I grew up in a um, very small kind of farm town in Connecticut, uh, very suburban, there was not a lot of culture. My, it was sort of that kind of growing up. And when I got to what all I wanted to be was sophisticated. That was something that was I just wanted people to think that I was yeah. like, smart and cool and I knew things. And I got yeah. to Hampshire and I felt like I was just tossed and I felt like a, a complete rube when I got there. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember you reading as a rube, uh, just for the record. <laughs> but, um. <laughs> well, I mean, it's really, a, it felt like a deep end of the pool kind of moment where I was, you know, I hadn't even, there was this assumption that you had read Marx and Freud and you're jumping to the next level, you know, people who were interpreting yeah. Marx and Freud. And I was a real fake it till you make it sort of, and I didn't ever quite make it but um, did, how did you when you um when you first got to to hampshire did you feel in terms of like access to culture and stuff like that was this like a big expansive thing or were you already in high school kind of like a guy who sought out kind of niche cultural stuff yeah i already was i was before high school i was lucky in a couple ways in my upbringing um in that my mother, so she was like really young when she had me. So when she was in college, I was like, um, you know, like th like three, four, five ish years old. Okay. And so she had all these, and she was like, uh, she's a social uh, social worker. Well, she's retired now, but she was a social worker, and you know, with like a lot of minors in like psychology and cultural studies sort of stuff. So like she was bringing home all these books that then were there for me when I was like probably too young to read them, like eight ish or so, and I started like trying to read stuff. 
um, that I really didn't get, like the existentialists and, and Freud and stuff like that. At but eight? through talking, <laughs> yeah, I tr- look, man, I'm saying I tried and I failed. <laughs> but but, but through talk, but through talk, through talking with her about them, I feel like I was exposed to some ideas kind of early on. Oh, um, that then set me up for reading in like middle school. That was a little more um, like I could get it a little more. Like I remember my, my mother really like, like loving, telling me the idea, uh, you know, like Camus, Albert Camus idea of Sisyphus, you know, the myth of Sisyphus, yeah. right. And how yeah. like, mm-hmm. we find, um, you know, like life inside of drudgery. But then also I was lucky because my, my mother and my stepfather, um, were very specific sort of like film geeks. Um, so, and since they kind of treated me like a little adult, like it was very like a, almost like a peer relationship with them. They just took me to every movie they went to. So like, the thing I remember the most is going to see like every Woody Allen movie in the theater. Like when I was, you know, from like oh, 1981 wow. or so on. Yeah. Um, and then also they were really into old Hollywood stuff. So I got a real education in, in the classics, like, like the big stuff that's like almost like too dorky to talk about, like Casablanca, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's not too dorky. It's a little bit like, like I always think about when the soprano on the Sopranos when Carmela and her friends had a film club. Remember that? And they watched like yeah, Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, I didn't get it. He was an asshole, which I agree with. But um, yeah. But uh, and then also my, my my mom was really into musicals, like old musicals. So oh, um, yeah. that that brought me into a whole different sort of culture. Um, and so yeah, like I think that there was an exposure to that kind of stuff and reading about that stuff because my mother is also she's a little little on the dark side and she's obsessed with like the celebrity death and suicide. So like mm. I remember having this book called the Hollywood album that was just all newspaper clippings of famous Hollywood deaths, you know, like this one OD'd on pills, this one died in a car crash, da, 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 da. Um, so yeah, there was a level of already seeking out culture, I guess. And then by the time I got to middle school and started getting into like, um, you know, like weird art and movies and punk rock, like it led me to like look for all kinds of crazy shit you know, one thing I was going to mention that's really like a secret weapon in my history in terms of finding movies early on that I loved was actually fucking Roger Ebert. Yeah? Yeah, like my parents had this book. I still have the copy of it. It's called Roger Ebert's um, Movie Home Companion. And it's like, when, which yeah. video cassette are you going to rent? And in there, it's like everything that's kind of contemporary to like the time, like the 80s, the mid 80s. But also um, there was Cassavetes, you know, and there was Herzog in there. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. And after I watched everything else, I was like, I guess I'm going to check these out. And so that led me to see like Fitzcarraldo and a woman of the influence and all these things um, in, in, in middle school. In middle school. Wow. So, yeah. And again, like, look, let me just re- real quick for the record. I'm not trying to say I was this precocious genius. Like I've got like maybe 10% of this shit when I was watching and reading. It, no, but, like, I, I totally, I totally get it. I mean, it's the, the thing that I'm always envious of is, access like how or not even not envious but just curious about how people find their way into their taste um yeah 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 and uh so so how were you seeing like these old like vincent minnelli musicals or whatever where were you watching these on tv were you guys was this like a video video store thing or how, how were you having access to some of these old hollywood films a little bit of both but mostly these things like especially the old movies they were on various turner networks that were kind of like new then so like there was oh, yeah, um, yeah. tbs and t and tnt came a little later and um they were showing all these movies and we were the kind of family that that videotaped a lot of stuff ourselves so we had a whole library like a closet full of movies that we taped you know mm-hmm. so like we would rewatch. um my mother and i 
I don't know, like Bye Bye Birdie, you know, like over and over again when I was a kid. I was actually named and after the guy who plays Conrad I Birdie was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your namesake is in Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. So like that, but then also she really liked kitsch, um, like, like early, like the earlier decades kitsch. And that was on TBS a lot too. So like one that one movie that I've seen probably more times than anybody else on earth has seen it for some reason is uh, this movie called the ghost and Mr. Chicken. Do you oh know yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. like recite that fucking movie. That was kind of where my family was at culturally. It was a lot of Don Knotts films. Tell the, yeah, stuff, explain, uh, explain the plot of the ghost and Mr. Chicken. Oh God. Okay. Well, Don Knotts plays a small, a small town newspaper man named Luther Haig. And um, there's a local house called the Simmons house where a family, where a murder suicide apparently happened. And his editor assigns him um, a story where he has to go spend the night in the house on the anniversary of the murder suicide and um, horror comedy hijinks ensue. <laughs> yeah. very. Good. I don't want to give away spoilers, but you know, I can no, if you want I, me well, to. I've been uh, I, I've been debating that on this podcast. You know what my spoiler rule is. I feel like if the movie is over a decade old, I think it's. You've I think waived it's okay. your right to not. Yeah, yeah, and I think also even if it's like newer, if the conversation is taking you somewhere where it's really important to talk about a spoiler, then you just give people a spoiler warning. Um, but yeah, the interesting well, something that's interesting to me that we were just talking about is just this like very eighties and maybe nineties kids phenomenon too of like your family having a library of video cassettes that you recorded off TV yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this really yeah. neat, like curated area of your house where it's like this is what we want to keep and be able to watch again and again. That was awesome. What's like the first thing you really remember being kind of obsessed with? Was it one? Was it something like Ghost of Mister Chicken or? Um. Hmm. It was Grease. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. Grease. Grease. Grease was one of the first movies I saw in the theater. I don't remember exactly when, but um, Grease was my first movie. Grease was my first record. Grease, yeah. uh, Olivia Newton-John was my first celebrity crush. Like, all that shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was all about Grease inside and out. I like Kanicki a lot more than Danny Zuko. Um, of course. Yeah, because he's just, like, way more dark horsey. Sometimes I drive, because I don't know, like, the uh, the high school, like, where the carnival, the exterior at the end where the carnival takes place, is a high school mm -hmm. in, in Los Feliz, and, um, which is, like, two neighborhoods over from me in Los Angeles. And if I'm in the area, sometimes I'll even still drive by there and look, because you can, like, if you look at, the at like, the athletic field from the right angle, you can see, like, grease there. You can kind of superimpose the memory over the reality, and it's, like this really like vertigo feeling of like nostalgia masochism. It's fucking awesome. That's amazing. Have yeah. you seen, there is a documentary that came out, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, but it was about the producer of Greece. Oh yeah. Robert um, Stigwood. Is that? Who yeah. Did? I hadn't, I haven't seen that. No. Um, you know, the doc is, is, you know, it's not the, um, it's Alan Carr actually. He did the music. He did the music side of it. Yeah. Uh, um, and it's a documentary about Alan Carr, but basically about how Greece made his career and then also kind of ruined his life in a sense because he wasn't able to ever recapture the glory of Greece, even though he kept trying and trying. And he was this flamboyant out gay guy partying. So almost yeah. like a, you know, uh, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Boogie Nights kind of level of self-loathing, but also ostentatiousness. Uh, it's, it's pretty. Um, that's a pretty tragic archetype. It is. It is. Um, what, it is. what else did he try? To, what else did he make after Greece? I'm sure I would know it if you tell me, but I don't have. I don't. I don't well, know. Well, he made Greece two, 
Oh, which I fucking hate, by the way. That's yeah. Grease Two is yeah. garbage. It's fucking garbage. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, he did so. The way he got into the business was the first kind of minor hit he had was CC and Company. Do you know that film with Joe Namath? Oh no! It's, uh, awesome. it's a it's a it's a biker film from 1970 um, starring Joe Namath, and it's pretty fun actually. And Joe Namath is pretty charming in it. It's you know it's a minor thing. I think it's on Prime. Amazon Prime, not to plug okay. Amazon, but um, yeah. And so through that, he was able to make Grease, and then he did Can't Stop the Music. Oh yes, you know the Village one? People movie. Sure, the sure. Okay, movie. yeah. I mean, I kind of love it. Starring Steve Gutenberg. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it was a massive. It it tanked kind of majorly. Um, yeah. And then what he a was shock. a persona non grata for a while, and then he did Grease too. Okay. Um, I think he died. Oh no, no, he died sort of he died sort of recently, but he stopped making films in the 80s. Okay. I mean Greece, yeah, Greece is magical. Yeah, it really is. It's an amazing like it's film. It's, it's lightning in a bottle in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. Um I and Greece too, like I know a lot of people who even like Greece one like it. And I just I, I dislike it because only you know Greece, the original, is just too special to me. But there are plenty of shitty musicals from that era that I love in that kind of like painful, nostalgic, like masochism way again. Like um, I really like Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. Oh also. yeah. yeah. Um, I really liked the BG Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. Okay. That's, that's, that's a weird one. Have you you've seen it? Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I think, I think Robert Stigwood set that up if I'm not mistaken. He was there. God, what was it? He had Archeo record. I can't remember, but Stigwood was involved in all this stuff in some way or another. Like he was kind of a mover behind the scenes with this. Um, I mean, it's look, this, the, the Bee Gees made a movie that was like a, like a musical um, based off of the Beatles record, Sgt. Peppers. And it was like, it's like the worst thing that has ever been made. It's wrong in so <laughs> many ways. It stars, um, who else is in it? George Burns, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Steve Martin. Steve Martin has uh, the most, I don't know how if Steve Martin could even watch that scene. He plays like a, like a mad scientist or something. He does like Maxwell's silver hammer and it's just the cringiest thing ever. That's another thing. It's not all the songs are from Sgt. Peppers. They just take Beatles songs from wherever. Yeah. Um, and Aerosmith plays the bad guy band. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. It's Donald the, Pleasance. Also, Don, yes. It? Donald Pleasance is in it. Um, Alice Cooper, uh, Carl. I don't know how to pronounce this, but Carl Stricken or something, which is the who is the giant from Twin Peaks. He's oh in yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't remember that. Um, I kind of watch it like I've I've watched it with a couple of friends through the years, like friends and groups of friends, where I frame it as like an endurance test, and it's like <laughs> how much of this can you take, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I because of that being the era when I was a certain age, where like nostalgia first starts to form, I um. You know, it has, it just has this weird, like, again, masochistic kind of pull to me. Yeah. I'm looking at the, um, the IMDB page for it right now. And, uh, Billy Preston plays Sergeant Pepper. He does indeed. He, he only, he's like, uh, I think he's like, uh, he starts off as like a, as like a weather vane on top of a building and then he becomes real somehow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the George, the, the best is watching George Burns, like try to do like a little bit of choreo. <laughs> because <laughs> he can barely fucking move and there's just one part where he's yeah, got yeah. to kind of like do kind of like a lively step down a flight of stairs and you're just like he's gonna break his hip on camera any second now <laughs> um it's beautiful man yeah and i remember being really afraid of of aerosmith in it like they frame that they do, they do come together in this real menacing way 
And um, in retrospect, it's terrible and totally toothless. But when I was like five, I was like, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. In uh, well, I saw it much. I mean, I didn't see it until I was an adult. So I, I, I don't have those. And I think that's the same thing with things like Greece too. A lot of, a lot of any kind of culture, movies, books, music, it's what age you were when you took it in and who you were with and the context of it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I, I managed a video store um, in, in Brooklyn for a while when I was playing in Panthers and touring. When I was off tour, I was managing this video store. And Which one? I, it was called Photoplay in Greenpoint. Oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was, I remember the story. It was great. It was a guy who, uh, this guy, Michael Sayers, used to work at Film Forum. He was one of the programmers there. He oh, opened cool. it up. Um, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen fathers bring in sons and try to get them to watch the original Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> and the kid just wants to watch the second set of Star Wars. They want Jar Jar Binks because that's the thing that they yeah. – uh, first, you know, yeah, and he's yeah. trying to explain that Jar Jar's lame and Ewoks are great. You know, it's <laughs> it's a it's a fruitless conversation. So I think you know, depending on when you saw Greece too, I can see it's it has everything. Yes, you're absolutely right. It has everything. It's all about context. It's all so subjective. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the other? Uh, were there other kind of weird musicals that you were obsessed with at the time? Yeah, I mean, my 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 musicals are kind of a, like well, there's Bye Bye Birdie, and then uh, the next one I would think of is Damn Yankees. Oh yeah, um, which I love because Bob Bob Fosse did the chore- choreograph choreography for the movie, and he's also in it in one of the numbers with Gwen Verdon, who was his wife, and it's a really great number. So I love that movie. Um, and then, but also more than those kind of, my mother and I were really into the old Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers films. Yeah. Um, yeah. Swing, Swing Time, Top Hat, The Gay Divorcee, all of those. Um, and those, those really hold up, man. Like they're very witty, very urbane. The dancing is insane, just yeah. insanely good. And, uh, and Fred Astaire is kind of funny cause he's a little bit queeny, you know, and kind of yeah, like yeah, bitchy yeah. and very, and, and it's all about like, you know, it's this sort of like. You can tell the screenwriters like kind of wish they had been invited to the Algonquin round table, but they weren't quite that witty, <laughs> but they're good enough, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love, yeah, I love those films. Those are really important to me. So you're a Vincent Minnelli fan. I take it. You like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, Gene Kelly, is that a guy that you, you know, I came to Gene so Kelly, yeah, later in life because to me, Gene Kelly, and I take all this back later now, but like, um, I was a Fred Astaire guy, and I think it's kind of like a Beatles Stones thing with, with Fred Astaire and Gene yeah, Kelly. It totally is. Um, yeah. And Gene Kelly is so, is like muscular and more burly, and a little bit more like he seems more eager to please than Fred Astaire was, you know. Um, but then, in, in retrospect, like an American in Paris, speaking of Minnelli, like I, I love that movie now. When I was a kid, I was like, eh, I don't really care. Yeah, I mean, he he, I think he's made a lot of great films, but it does have that. I think especially if you're like a straight guy watching these films, this idea that Gene Kelly is the, the more masculine figure and he takes the sort of like fear of any sort of homosexual undertones out of the, <laughs> the musical. Right. And that is, that, that to me is kind of less appealing. Like you sort of, you, I, that's, I fall on the Fred Astaire side of the uh, equation. Yeah. We're not, we're not, your, we're not exactly your typical straight guys. Um, maybe. But I, I mean, who, what straight guys who are worried about this are watching Gene Kelly musicals anyway. I don't really know if that's a category. <laughs> that's a good but. question. I don't know. <laughs> but no, but in, but in retrospect, Gene Kelly is incredible. I, I like an American in Paris best out of his films. Um, but uh, yeah, Fred Astaire all the way, man. Fred Astaire all the way. 
I even love his music. He's got a couple of records where he sings like Cole Porter and Gorshwin standards that are just incredible. Speaking of video stores, were you, was video store culture a thing for you growing yeah, up? Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the, based on when I was growing up, I don't think there's any way it couldn't have been. I remember the first video store in my town. It was 1982. It was called Video Den, I think. Um, and it was like, it was like one tiny room. It was like the size of like a studio apartment. And I remember there was this other kid in town who I didn't know, but I would see him at the store and we were always at war for the same film. Ah. Because there was only there would only be one copy of a movie, you know. Right. So I remember specifically being at war with him for Tron, mm-hmm. um, but more importantly, being at war with him for Time Bandits, which is one of my big childhood films too. Which is like <laughs> such a great movie. But uh, yeah, and then later on, like um, there was the wall to wall sounded video was like the combo record store video store, and um, I mean I, I I don't know how many times I was in there a week, like five easily. My family again was a very um, movie heavy, like rental heavy family. So I, I probably watched the entire store by the end of my adolescence. Were you a person, was there a certain age where you kind of broke off on your own in terms of film watching? Was it, was it always like a family endeavor for most of your, you know, young childhood into like junior high, or were you at a certain point renting movies, watching with your friends or by yourself? There was a lot of solitary film watching for me. Yeah. Um, I would watch my parents' films, my mom and stepdad, like all the classics we've been talking about, but they wouldn't watch my movies. So like if I was watching Time Bandits, that would be by myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they could go there. But yeah, uh, yeah. and then I really branched off, I guess. I guess I branched off a lot, you know, when I was like maybe 10-ish or so, and I started getting into horror films. Which they, my stepdad is like, you know, he likes like The Exorcist, but I was like, that was the era when you could just go rent like The Evil Dead 1 and 2, you know, or like Return of the Living Dead. And I was getting into really heavy, like gore, you know, over the top comedy horror kind of shit like that. So that's the first stuff I remember like that really was like, this is for me in my house, you know? So you discovered Evil Dead when you were 10 years old? No, I don't know. No, not Evil Dead. No, okay. Uh, Okay. I mean, Evil Dead came out probably when I was like in seventh or eighth grade. Right. When I was 10, the horror, like, I don't know, maybe 10's wrong. I remember, no, it's about right. Cause that's when I started watching like, um, like the horror classics, like, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, um, last, last house on the left, like the gnarly seventies stuff, you know, yeah. that's a lot to take in for that age. Yeah. I mean, it's those probably kind of traumatizing. T- last house on the left now is like it's a really hardcore movie yeah it's it's really yeah. harsh I, but i yeah. think there was this like this story that you heard as like a film consumer back then but like that like a lot of those movies were like in a way adjacent to like the great like hollywood like filmmakers of the 70s you know what i mean you were aware of that at the time I, yeah and again and I, but I think through ebert oh. i think through ebert oh yeah and yeah this book this book just has everything wasn't he kind of famously anti-horror, Roger Ebert? I know he really hated the slasher films. Yes, he was anti-slasher, him and Siskel both, but he was not anti-horror. Um, he liked Evil Dead too. I'm pretty sure oh, okay. he gave it like three and, a, three and a half stars or something like that. No, he was able to see the merit in films. Um, I think he might have even given Last House on the Left a good review. Wow. 
I think he might have. Um, I think he could see like what like had, you know, a point. I think he probably gave, I don't know about Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually, cause that's a slasher, but it's before slashers were slashers. So I'm not sure where he yeah. landed on that. But um, it's funny as I talk about this stuff again, I feel like I, I'm making myself sound incredibly precocious, but again, I was reaching, you know what I mean? Like beyond yeah. my years because of stuff uh, like Roger Ebert, I guess. Well, the real, yeah, I think the real moment when I was like, this is like a thing that I love was like late, like in middle school. So that was like Return of the Living Dead um, and, and Evil Dead 2, which then took me back to Evil Dead 1. I'd say that was yeah. like those two, Return of the Living Dead especially, because it had punk and zombies in it. It was just yeah, yeah. like, it was really special. Yeah. I, I, I do think, to your point about reaching, you know, above your sort of intellectual pay grade when you're watching films or absorbing any kind of culture with film. It's interesting. Cause it, 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 I think in terms of access, it's a bit more, it was a bit more egalitarian at the time, at least for me, cause you could wander into a video store. I mean, you could wander into a bookstore as well. This is all plausible, but these boxes, the information on the back, there's something about the culture of the store. You had a vibe of like, they're often, you know, organized by genre and you could just yeah. sort of guess on one and then, go from there. And cause I was in junior high, that's when I was watching evil dead. And you know, a lot of it too was, I was talking about this with Sam Lipsite that so much of the culture at the time. And again, this goes past even film is liking the idea of a thing more than the thing itself, because you didn't always have access to that thing. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Like not being able to see cannibal Holocaust, but having heard about it, Oh, and yes. then okay, going sure. on a quest to get it and spending all this money and time to try to find the film. And by the time you get it, you have so much invested in liking it that you almost have to, you like the idea of the thing usually more than the product. But even with yeah. Evil Dead, I, you, I, you know, you'd see it. I, I saw that. I first had Evil Dead 2 I saw in Fangoria and it was just a photo of Bruce Campbell as Ash with the chainsaw hand. Oh, it's so good. And yeah. I was completely haunted by that image and obsessed. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Evil Dead is a difference. I would say, and I think using Cannibal Holocaust as, a, as an example of like the, what you're talking about is, is, is right. Because that's the kind of thing where you would hear about it or like Faces of Death, right? These really gnarly movies. Yeah. You would hear about them. And then, but for me, when I finally saw them, I was repulsed. I didn't, I couldn't pretend I liked them because, I mean, mainly because they have like animal torture in them. And I was just like, that's, like, yeah, yeah. I, I can't go there. But with Evil Dead 2, I mean, that's an actual excellent movie it's a it's it's like a three stooges movie kind of but it's also got like genuine scares in it and like sort of uncanny moments in it yeah. um but i think yeah. for most people of our age are, are i know we're a few years apart but it was a it was the first one where you can kind of see the seams of the filmmaking and you it felt like it was something you could do in a way yeah it was accessible <laughs> and it was so inventive and um it definitely was that i think we had a, I had a night at a, at a friend's house where we rented that and taxi driver. And then after that, oh. I was just completely obsessed with. That was movies. back when you were a kid, you mean? Yeah. And you like junior high. I think I that's was a crazy. Wow. That's a big double feature. Yeah. 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 Um, I like, I, I kind of, I remember doing the double feature back then of um, Evil Dead 2 and Raising Arizona. Because oh, wow. they were, they're kind of related, you know, the, the Cohen brothers were friends with Sam Raimi yeah. and they yeah. shared some crew and like, they have like, there's that, uh, that crazy, like, I don't even know what to call it. Like the, the endless zoom effect they use. 
in both of those movies, like Evil Dead when the demons the crazy tracking, the, like yeah. the follow shot. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, there are a lot of like you know shared camera tricks in those films, and you kind of look at them and you're like, these are kind of the same movie in some ways. It's really cool. Yeah, they shared a real sensibility for this, but you look at Blood Simple too. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of cross pollination, I guess. Yeah, definitely. With those. Yeah, but Faces um, of Death, um, Cannibal Holocaust, all all the Mondo Kane films, I, I really don't understand. I think they are the kind of thing, and this is a related phenomenon to what you were talking about, where it's like people like to say they like them because it makes them sound hard. Um, yeah, but I don't think I don't know if anybody short of Jeffrey Dahmer actually enjoys watching them. <laughs> 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 I definitely know people who who have a lot of their personality invested in Ugh. you know liking those kind of films. But it's like I, a, it's like I, an edge lord thing, though, right? Like, do you doubt whether they actually like them? Like, yeah, I mean, the, oh god, yeah, it is. It is kind of it with certain films for sure. It's an edge lord thing, definitely. Yeah, but I, you yeah. know, I think like with anything else, your your taste can get so niche, and you can also get so used to a certain style or a certain aesthetic that the things that people find repugnant about them just kind of wash over you like nothing, you know, and you just start yeah. absorbing other aspects. And the soundtracks are a big draw for a lot of those films. There's a lot of elements. That's true. It's not, yeah. not always the filmmaking itself, but as a kid, you know, I read about that movie that it was like maybe real, you know, <laughs> like yeah. all yeah, kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And, and, all, and you know, as like most kids being obsessed with, horror like Stephen King books and serial like those that idea itself is so scary and kind of titillating sure definitely you're you're, you're curious yeah for yeah sure um but i i mean i i the stuff that i remember being really disturbed by that was at the video store I, we did an we did another double feature where we rented meet the feebles do you know that movie is that peter jackson like it early? is yeah i remember that yeah and it was like the film itself is it's basically like fucked up muppets right Yes, yeah, it's the Muppet yeah. Show, but like they're on heroin. They reenact <laughs> right. the, deer, the deer hunter scene. The yeah, Russian yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Oh my god, yeah. And I was so disturbed by that movie. All right, like, I can't. Just the the whole vibe of it was so gross to me. Yeah. We watched that, and we watched the Ralph Bakshi animation Coonskin. Do you know that one? No, I, I I know Bakshi. I don't love Bakshi, but I've seen a lot of his stuff. I've never even heard of this one. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in the same camp. I don't love Bakshi either. But this was uh, Barry White does the main plays the main character, oh, wow. and it's about it's sort of set in New York. A lot of real photographic backdrops of of mm-hmm. uh, Times Square with animation mm-hmm. on top, pimps, prostitutes, cops. Oh wow! And it's very very. It has a very dark, dark, sleazy vibe. And for a 13-year-old from Cheshire, Connecticut, it was <laughs> far too much to bear. Far too much. That's funny, because yeah. both of those guys made Lord of the Rings movies, too. Bakshi and Jackson. Um, Jackson's an interesting case for me, actually, because Meet the Feebles and um, what Dead Alive... That was it. What was, yeah. it was called Dead Alive, right? I, I love yep. those. I thought they were fantastic. I, I even liked um, Heavenly Creatures. Remember that? Yeah, I loved Heavenly Creatures. I love Dead Alive too. It's Dead Alive is really fun. Dead Alive is like Evil Dead too. I mean, it's in the same, absolutely in the same wheelhouse. But um, sure. then he went ahead and made the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies, and like those are those are you know, hugely important books to me, and I couldn't I couldn't dislike those movies more. Really? 
Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally surprised, but what, what do you think he, what was wrong with his interpretation? What, what bothered you the most about it? Well, first of all, I don't know if it's possible to make them into a film that, that, that can work for, for me at least. Um, Maybe a TV series. I don't know because there's Mm -hmm. just so much, but right off the bat, he just, he just cuts out, you know, things that are really key to me. Like, um, I mean, how nerdy do you want to get? Let's get nerdy. He cuts out Tom Bombadil, which is a problem. Yeah, yeah. He you does, know, yeah. it's the most fascinating character. And he happens really early in Lord of the Rings um, in the Fellowship of the Ring. So cutting that out just shows to me that like, I, I felt like he wanted to simplify things. Um, and then he does things like add in this really unnecessary humor. Like he turns Legolas and Gimli into like this comedy duo, you know? Right. Who are like always like, you know, counting like dead as they're, as they're like, you know, fighting orcs and it's just ridiculous. You think he, you put too much humor in it and, and, and simplified the plots. Did you aesthetically find it interesting or were you bummed about the look of it as well? I think aesthetically a lot of it was good. I think that he, like, I, if you go back and look at them now, he overreached on some of the green screen technology and like the yeah. like massive CGI, like making a horde of an army kind of tech. So it's kind of dated, but no, I think like production design, like costuming, I think the orcs look fucking great. Like, I think the casting was fantastic. He just couldn't direct the actors at all. Like, especially Mary and Pippin, like they're, they're another Cooper characters that just duo of characters that are just completely idiotic for like no good reason. <laughs> um, but all that being said, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is like, a masterpiece compared to the Hobbit trilogy, which is wrong, oh, yeah, which we, yeah. I mean, we don't even need to belabor why that's wrong, but um, no, but if I don't know if you've ever looked at it and I don't know there, there's no great reason to do this. I have, just, I watch everything that I hate. I do. I, I'm like, I'm going to hate this and I have to see it. So I have watched. No, it. but this in particular, this, they're, they're on, you can find it on YouTube. There's a making of uh, the Hobbit and it is the uh, most just brutalizing. Like everybody thinks it sucks. They're all so overwhelmed and overworked. <laughs> Peter Jackson looks like he's going to cry the entire thing. It's just, and everyone's wow. apologizing for like, it wasn't, the script wasn't done. We were making sets the day before. Oh we were always, I mean, it's like, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's kind of, I mean, I, I've watched it more than once because the tone of it, <laughs> it's, it's wild to me that it was included on any kind of DVD release or whatever it was. But um, yeah, wow. I don't think that's funny. But those those kind of movies, that was the beginning of his style of film that I think maybe you can, I'm sure you have some thoughts about this, that, you know, I saw behind the scenes footage of making of Avengers Endgame, and it was like Benedict Cumberbatch in a green suit with, in a green, standing in a green void, yelling at a tennis ball. Yeah, There's like yeah, no, yeah. not a single real hand touching anything real. So I don't know how any of you have any joy being... In, in making these kind of films. You might, you might want to put your finger over the stop recording button and hang up on me in a sec, but I actually enjoy the Marvel universe. No, no, I, I listen, I've seen them all and I have different levels of enjoyment in the different yeah. films. And I also yeah. totally recognize like what's appealing about a lot of even this. I mean, I was a huge comic book guy yeah. too, and a yeah. Marvel person. And the idea that there'd be an Avengers movie when I was, you know, and when I was 10 years old, I would have, my head would have exploded. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's just this, the, the, the look of those films aren't in, particularly inspiring. 
No, 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 no. The only ones that are visually inspiring are the ones that are like more on the psychedelic, like Jack Kirby and stuff like the Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy or like the Thor film, uh, Ragnarok. Yeah, and the, the Doctor Strange one was. Doctor Strange is pretty psychedelic, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just glad they didn't go dark. You know what I mean? They are kind of, because Marvel is kind of sunny and day glow in a lot of ways, and, and they didn't shy away from that. Yeah, I'm, I, and Marvel manages to stay on the lighter side of things. Although they're, you know, everybody like, there's always a scene where someone has a beard and their like wife is dead or something. You know, there's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. Well, the greatest, the greatest decision in that department in the Marvel films is when, um, well, after Hawkeye's family is like disappeared, he like gets like the faux hawk and like starts wearing like leather and shit. <laughs> I love that when he becomes Ronan. It's great. Or not Ronan. What's he called when he does that? Is it Ronan? I don't know. Whatever. But yeah, that's fucking amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I also think that was, I don't know. Do you, are you, have you ever seen any of other, uh, of Jeremy Renner's work before the Marvel films? Did you see Dahmer? Yes. I think he's fantastic in that. He's really good. Yeah, I do. I think he's an odd fucking guy. Like he does that weird music. that's kind of country. And he seems yeah. to be a little bit like, I don't know, a little politically sus, but like, I think he's a really yeah. good, I mean, I even, I think the Hurt Locker was a moment we all got caught up in. That's kind of overrated in retrospect, but I thought he was great in that when it came out. Yeah, he was. Um, no, Jeremy Renner's like a, the real deal, but a lot of the actors in the Marvel films are, are, are great actors. Well, you're seeing that more and more too. I was talking to a friend about the Harry Potter films that it's essentially a, a Mike Lee cast. I mean, it's like every great yeah. British actor yeah. is in those movies. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. I mean, David Thewlis is one of my favorite actors, um, like He's ever. Incredible. And he yeah. plays Lupin, who's my favorite professor in the, in the Hogwarts cosmology. So like, I love it. You know, I'm all there. Yeah. I'm there for it. Yeah, Thulis is great. I interviewed him once. He wrote, he wrote a novel back in like 2007 or something, and I got to talk to him. Oh, really? he, was, he was really, yeah, he's really cool. Yeah, we were, uh, yeah, we were discussing actors who write fiction on one of the other podcasts, and mm-hmm. I, he didn't come up. I didn't know that he. How's the book? It's good. It's just the one book, as far as I know, and as I recall, it's about. It's kind of like takes place in the British art world, like the YBA kind of British art world, where it's like a bunch of like way too much money and excess. And um, I think it ends up with an artist like killing a gallerist at, at, the, at the Tate at the end or something like that. So it's <laughs> kind of over the top. But it was it was funny. I remember thinking that he definitely learned a lot about um, about dialogue from 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 Mike Lee. Well, the, I think I'd be remiss not to touch on the literary side of things with you with some of the stuff. Do you, are there any films that you feel like capture writing or writers in a way that you find to be accurate or compelling? Or is there, have you ever seen a film that really gets hmm. the interior of the writing process hmm. on film? Jeez. Or about writing, a film about writing. <laughs> well, the, yeah, I got to think about it a little bit. But the interior of the writing process is not really something that you want to film because it's just somebody sitting, uh, staring at a computer, a typewriter, a pad of paper, or yeah. a wall. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I think that in that way, it's difficult. Um, I'm thinking there are writer, there are movies about writers that I like, but I like them because they're cheesy, um, okay. and they kind of give me a, like. This is kind of crazy, but I, I have a warm, soft spot in my heart for that movie, Wonder Boys. Oh, um, with... Um, uh, it's, it's by Curtis Hansen. It's yeah, with yeah, Michael yeah. Douglas and yes. uh, Tobey Maguire, based on a novel by Michael Chabon. And it's like, it's about like, 
you know, a, a little a kid who's a prodigy out of college and his professor is a, is a struggling failed novelist who might have one more good book in him. And Robert Downey Jr. is the novelist gay agent who like kind of like preys on the young author. And it's, um, it's like, it's not how writing really is at all in my, in my experience, yeah. but it kind of like gets, it gets at a little bit of like the academic world of writing because it takes place at the college and it's got like, you know, professors, uh, you know, kind of like having like wars of ego with head, department heads. And it's got like a bigger writer played by Rip Torn comes to town for a conference and like, mm-hmm. he's very pretentious and the Michael Douglas character has a lot of problems with him. Um, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like if it's like if a superhero movie screenplay writer wrote a wrote a movie about writers, kind of. It's like <laughs> tweaked up. Yeah. But it's kind of like I don't know. Something about it is cozy to me. Um, in another way, I feel like Barton Fink kind of captures some of like yeah. some really amplified essence of like what it's like to be um, a writer because he's having this war um, within himself against like these completely high-minded, unrealistic ideals of like writing communist plays for the people versus, <laughs> um, you know, being a, a studio, um, you know, uh, like a, like in, in the studio stable. Um, yeah. So I like that. There's actually a book that's kind of interesting that I've been reading recently. I don't know if it's in print. It might be kind of hard to find, but it's called Sometime in the Sun. And it's an, it's a nonfiction book about the time when people like William Faulkner and F. Scott Fitzgerald and, um, and Otto Huxley and, um, you know, like Nathaniel West were screenplay, were writing screenplays in Hollywood, you yeah. know? And they're all, uh, it just, it basically is Barton Fink. Like it's where they, they must have, cause like, I think the one character in Barton Fink is based pretty explicitly on Faulkner, you know, the guy who's played by the guy. And it's all that, like they're, you know, nobody understands them. They're drunk all the time They're but they're also being snobbish about, they're like acting like they're like demeaning themselves so much by doing this. Where I think a lot of like, writers would do better to just look at themselves as craftspeople. And if they get some work, especially in a time like this, they should be grateful for the work. I can I kind of came at that sideways, but I don't know. No, um, no, no. I, I think that's great. I think that's totally right on. The question is sort of mostly the answer is no, there isn't a real way to capture this kind of thing. Um, no. So yeah, I'm always curious if there's something, if there's a, is a movie for people that are like, well, this actually does, there's an aspect of it that, resonates with me about this kind of work. I did just think of adaptation, which I think it's not about, it's about oh, a yeah. screenwriter, but um, I think that the way like that he, like that Charlie Kaufman, like kind of bifurcated himself into these twins to show these different warring sides of like a writer's ego was pretty accurate in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like Stephen King's the dark half. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are there, are there, screen, do you think about screenwriters? Are there screenwriters that you are, that you're a fan of? Or is it, is that sort of like a, you know, you'll notice them, but it's not really, um, I think it's more like that. I think it's more like, um, yeah, like, or I'll think that something was well-written, but I don't really, to my detriment, maybe I don't really dig into being like, who wrote this and what's their deal? Um, well, then there are screen, I mean like, well, Mike Lee, for example, is a screenwriter who I think is extraordinary, but he's got such a very specific process. You know, do you know his process? It's kind of crazy. Is it, is it sort of impossible? kind of improv based like sure, yeah. out, like an outline i think the what this like what they start with varies from film to film but basically he he has a situation like a place and a time and like the people like a couple of the people and then he gathers the actors and they find the story in these improvs oh, and wow. then but then he does go and write a screenplay there is a screenplay you know 
That's kind um, of incredible. Though. Yeah, I think it's really neat. And it definitely comes out of, I think, the fact that, if I'm not mistaken, I think he initially wanted to be an actor himself. Yeah, I mean, all those characters feel so lived in, and you can see the, how that Yeah, process. yeah, it definitely. It's, it's because they built them together, I think. Cheesy movies about writers can be fun. Yeah? Like, I mean, any, like, there was a movie, wasn't there a movie where, like, Harry Potter played, like, Ginsburg or something like that? <laughs> Yeah, there was, there was. I never, I haven't seen that, but yeah, I, I do, I do remember that one. Yeah. Like, I like it. I remember, I remember being like, this is great. Um, and also what an impossible, you know, biopics are almost always terrible because they have to f- sort of flatten time and, and, and s- squash things down to the point where there's really no creating a story arc of a person's real life is just all, all the complexity and nuance of a life has to be pretty much erased. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea of trying to do it with a writer of all people, <laughs> yeah, right. Completely, like, what are we even showing here? That reminds me of one of the worst ones ever. And it's right. It's um, when, when, uh, when, uh, what's her, when Gwyneth Paltrow played uh, Sylvia Plath. Oh, Oh what my was God. Was that called? Was it called Sylvia? Probably. I don't know. I mean, what else would they call it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I remember having a, watching that and just being like, "This is like basically Showgirls in its own way," you know. Are you a fan of Showgirls? I mean, the whole like ironic appreciation of a film thing kind of bugs me, but yeah, I like Showgirls. I definitely like a lot of Verhoeven a lot more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But Showgirls, yeah, I think it's fun. Yeah. Do you buy? By the way, it is called the film is called Sylvia. Uh, okay, to put it in the queue. Two thousand and three. Yeah, exactly. It's the pick to click of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, do you buy Verhoeven's? I know we're kind of jumping around here, but do, do you buy Verhoeven's sort of? He talks about it as if he made the film to be watched with this kind of detached irony that it's this. It's mm. purpose. And you think that might have been like kind of like being like, I meant to do that when you like drop something. It's so hard to say because I think his films are as even his most outrageous movies or most Hollywood films are very well thought out and pretty meticulous. So yes, it seems yes, they this are. is definitely an outlier in a way where it feels like he maybe did. I, you know, it's so hard to, it's so hard to tell. It's, it's completely hard to know. <clears throat> I think I believe him. I do. I do think I believe him because the point you just made, which is that his other films, no matter how over the top they are, um, they have, they have points and there is like a universe inside of them. And like, you know, the motivations are there and like the, 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 the everything makes sense. You know what I mean? There's a logic yeah. even to um, the insanity, you know, when it's like something like Starship Troopers. In fact, that movie kind of hammers its point home maybe too hard. Right. Oh, it's so heavy handed. Yeah. But he, but you can tell like, he's got like a framework of, of thought. I think with showgirls, you know, and I don't know, I think the the crux, like the way to know whether this is like, whether he's lying or not would be to find out whether he ever had a drug problem or not. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a good point. Because <laughs> would be his Coke movie if, if, if not. But I think maybe because he was at the peak of like a moment, right? When Showgirls was made, like he had yeah. probably a good amount of money and studio backing and not a lot of oh, interference. Yeah, yeah. And I think he might've said, well, I'm doing a thing about like the most over the top garish entertainment in the world. And I'm going to make it that, you know what I mean? I'm going to make it too close to what it is. But then you listen to interviews with the actors and they're like traumatized by that film. They really, Oh yeah. Was he like a screamer? No, no, just the film, the result of the film. I think like Kyle MacLachlan, (laughs) 
he, in interviews, he's just, you can see he's just really mortified. Yeah, and, yeah, right. And Jessica Beale, is that her name? Jessica Beale? No, it's uh, Shannon, uh, what's God, what's her? What's Elizabeth, 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 Elizabeth Berkeley, yeah, Joe Osterhouse wrote it. Which is like, that, that's, a, that's a hint, I think, that Joe Osterhouse wrote it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, but she, she basically didn't work again. And she, and she was really like, she claimed well, that she's like, a shitty actress. Yeah. 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 That's true. I mean, I think that's but what even, it comes but if the film she, was, if the film was good enough, she'd work. I mean, she'd still work, but yeah, she yeah, was, yeah. she, I think she, she claimed to be sort of tricked into the level of sexuality that was in the film. I don't know how you could trick someone into doing that pool scene, but uh, you know, I don't know. I could see, I mean, look, you're on the set of a multi-million dollar film and the director is Paul Verhoeven and you feel this pressure to do something you don't really want to do. I totally get that. Yeah. If yeah. that's, if that's what happened. Um, but I think it, it, if you just look at the performance, like, it, you know, divorced from all these other things that, 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 that are, that sound horrible. Um, it's a bad performance. And that could be because <laughs> <laughs> I think, I don't know. I wonder how Verhoeven directed them. I wonder if he really, I wonder how much of an actor's director he even is, you know? I mean, it's so hard to say. Uh, he, yeah. I mean, he had his moment with Rutger Hauer, where they made a lot of films together. Um, yeah. Uh, Flesh and Bone. That's a great movie. Yeah, is that what it's called? Yeah. Flesh and Bone? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And Turkish Delight. It's really great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I'm thinking of like all the performances in Showgirls and it's like Kyle MacLachlan. Who's it? He's yeah. a, I thought he was a good actor before Twin Peaks season Three and now I think he's a fucking genius. Yeah, because I, well, I he, agree. He played he played like four, maybe five characters with com- all with a completely different internal life and physicality in yeah. that in that season. It was just mind blowing. Um, yeah, he's incredible. But I remember I'm thinking about his performance in that film and everybody else's performance, and I remember them all as being pretty flat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they they have one they have one speed one affect. Well, Elizabeth Berkeley has two: screaming and not screaming. Yeah, and they just kind of, yeah. I don't know. There's there is certain directors like David Mamet or or even Yorgos Lanthimos that they like this an affected performance style. They want a very specific type of performance from the actors. Yes, yes. Um, this doesn't totally read to me. Showgirls doesn't read to me that way, but it, it's hard. I mean, it's so hard to tell because I I really just I'm a huge fan of almost all of his work, except for maybe the invisible man. I don't know. That one was. Yeah. A little problematic. Yeah. Majorly problematic, but uh, yeah. But so no, I, I it called, wasn't called the invisible man. Was it? It was called like the hollow man. Hollow man. Yeah, hollow yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There is a scene in that where, because of course the, the premise being that if you become invisible, the, you're immediately going to be a complete pervert. You're a sexual <laughs> predator. Like right away. Yeah. That's what, that's yeah. all men. If they become invisible, that's all they're going to want to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a scene in it where he, un- Kevin Bacon, right, is the star? Yeah, I think? yeah, he, he is. He buttons a woman's shirt and he, I think it's Elizabeth Shue even, I, I don't remember, but he squeezes her boob and he's invisible. Oh, so yeah. So somewhere there was a CGI guy who was spending all of his time yeah. trying to make a realistic <laughs> boob squeeze. Yeah, yeah. What a day at work that is. Yeah, when he was spent. I'm thinking back. I mean, I, I, maybe we can move on from Verhoeven soon. I don't know, but like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, but one thinking back to like all of his films, and I, I got to admit, I haven't seen his most recent stuff. I know he returned to kind of more like dr- dramatic, like not so over the top stuff recently. I think, but I'm thinking of like Total Recall. Yeah. Um, you know, Starship Troopers, like the stuff that everybody knows. 
Yeah. And all the performances I think are, are very B movie and, 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 and one note. And I think maybe he goes for that on purpose. Basic instinct. No, he didn't make that. Did he? He did. He did make basic instinct. Yeah. Yes, okay. He did. Same he did. thing. Same thing. Yeah. And I think that I, I honestly, I have a theory about this. Um, and yeah, we don't have to get into it too much, but I think that once he got to Hollywood, all of those films are in some way or another critiques of Hollywood and critique of Hollywood genre. And he cast like in Starship Troopers, they're like soap opera actors and television actors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, I mean, the man is, is a great charisma, great action star, you know, but he's not known for acting chops. Like, you know, this is, no. he was, he was dying to work with him. Um, you know, and the main character in Robocop is a fucking robot. I mean, they, Peter, yeah. you know, they're, yeah. I think he, I think that in some ways he is, I mean, I think there's a critique of Hollywood cinema inside these very entertaining Hollywood films. I think you're right. I do think you're right. And I also think, if we, as we think about it too, like things like RoboCop and Basic Instinct, especially, and Showgirls and Starship Troopers, actually, are also about like kind of like some of the, like the worst kind of things that people can like be or do to each other. Yeah, so they're incredibly th- subversive films too. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah, they're they they the opening scene of Basic Instinct is fucking insane. Oh, Even that, by like today's the sex, the sex murder thing. Which yes, is like, yeah, yeah. It's so great. violent and so. Yeah. I mean. I watched it recently and I was, I couldn't believe it. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like I can't. It's like, she's on top of him and she like grabs a knife and yeah. stabs him while she's like riding them. Right. An ice pick. Yeah. And it's right, so right. bloody, but the sex scene is completely explicit. The sex scene is explicit. Yeah. All, I mean, it's a really That's the opening. Like first moment of the film is this, it's just like, yeah. it's totally. Yeah. Yeah. And he does that even in all the, I would say a new one, if you haven't seen uh black book, or Black Books. Right, I haven't seen that. Yeah, no, um, it's called Black Book, I think. I haven't seen that. That's great. And the one he did with Charlotte Rampling where she gets sexually assaulted and then becomes obsessed with the assault. I don't know that either. That came out, oh, I'll, I, the name's escaping me. Yeah, I, I, for some reason, like, you know how sometimes, even though you like a director, they'll start, they'll move into a different phase of their career and you just kind of are like, eh, whatever, I'll get around to it. Like, I don't feel <laughs> compelled. about uh uh are there adaptations that you're you find to be particularly good you know i thought about this a little bit before we talk because i thought it might come up and I, I i really could not really find many examples or or any i don't i, I don't know um one thing that i thought of um is true grit the coen brothers true grit mm-hmm. um i love that book it's a fantastic book um and i think the adaptation is like really solid it's not like their best film it's not like gonna you know go down and throw the ages but it's a strong it's a strong adaptation yeah i just rewatched um, that recently. it's very good yeah right it's good and the book is great if you haven't read it too it's really really good you know it, yeah it's tough i i, I actually kind of like the talented mr ripley oh yeah um, because i love uh, patricia highsmith i just really like her like she's so fucking dark and oh, was such a fucked up person I'm obsessed with her yeah, yeah she's amazing, she's amazing. Um, and I think that was pretty true to the book in ways that I liked. Um, I think that the silence of the lambs is better than the novel. And I love the novel. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. These are all pretty mainstream things I'm thinking of. No, no that's fine. No, no, I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that I am. I think maybe when things are a little more indie, I might find them to get a little bit more um, pretentious in this world. You know, the first thing I think about when I think about film, you know, novels that ad- adapted into film is Stephen King. Um, Cause there's just so many of them yeah. and they're all pretty bad, you know, in my opinion. There, um, yeah, there's some, I'm trying to think, are there any good ones? I mean, the misery, misery is, misery is, I don't like it that much. I haven't, I, I actually haven't seen it since I was, it's a little bit theater. like, I mean, it, de- it defangs the, the movie. I mean, the book to some degree, I think like, um, right. like in the movie, she, I think smashes his foot with a sledgehammer yeah. Um, in the book, she chops that shit off with an ax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and it cauterizes it with a blowtorch. Yeah. You know? um, so, I mean, I like The Shining, of course, but it's not, it, it's almost like the book and the movie are different things. They're so incredibly different in so many ways. Yeah. Um, well, you get that sometimes. I think I, I thought of um, Daphne du Maurier, uh, her short story for Don't Look Now that the Nicholas Rogue film is based on. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I love that movie, but I didn't know that that was from a short story. Yeah, and the story is great. Uh, I think the movie expands on it. Um, that's interesting. But that's, yeah. yeah, and also um, with horror films, it kind of worked like the the Tenant is another, I think, really good. A Polanski film? Yeah, it was written by this guy, Roland Topor. Are you familiar with him at all? No. This is someone I think you'll be fascinated by, and you should look him up. Nice. So he, he played... Okay. Renfeld in the Herzog Nosferatu. That was his only acting role. Interesting. Okay. He did animation for Fantastic Planet. That's the only time he animated anything. Wow. He wrote one book, which was The Tenant, which Polanski made into a film. Which I love. And he directed one film called Marquis, and it's about the Marquis de Sade, but it's done half claymation, half live action, where all of the people oh have God. animal he- They all have animal heads. And the only human head is the head of the Marquis de Sade's penis, who he has like discussions with in his prison cell. Uh, <laughs> fuck. That movie, okay. I, that's uh, that's uh, I, I highly recommend. I think. Yeah, you know, I'm sold. That sounds like, great. I'm into that. <laughs> um, I thought of a couple more. I think maybe pulp novels translate better into films. Yeah. I think that just that you know what a novel does when it's doing its best to me is really hard to make into a film that it's hard to port it over. It's not a one-to-one kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. but, but I think Paul, you know, crime and, and, and noir books work a lot better. So, I mean, um, there's R- Jackie Brown, which was rum punch, the Elmer Leonard book. Yeah. I think that Jackie Brown's a great film. Um, and I really like uh, cockfighter, you know, Monty Hellman's cockfighter, oh, yeah. yeah, which is based on Charles Williford's cockfighter, um, which is a book yeah. that I'm like, really, you know, I wrote an intro for an edition of that a few years ago. Yeah. Really love that book. I think that he captured that really well. The casting couldn't have been better with Warren Oates also. That book, the, 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 it really, I think the best you can do in these scenarios is kind of capture the feeling of what it's like to read the book more than, which yeah, I think is kind of hard to do because it's not, everyone has a different sort of, but I think Cockfighter does that really well. It does. And so does, so does Jackie Brown. I think Elmore Leonard yeah. is just, he's just so easy to adapt because his, his, his dialogue is, is basically already in screenplay form. And, um, and his plots are just so fucking like fleet footed, you know what I mean? And his characters are so lovable and hateable. He, he, Elmore Leonard in a way is a screenwriter who writes novels or wrote novels. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, sure. But sometimes I think about, you know, to kind of tweak the question a little, I think about books that I love that haven't been made 
into films and whether I want that to happen or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one that always comes to mind first is the secret history by Donna Tartt, mm. which is like, uh, one of my favorite books. It's, I mean, do you know, you know it, right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's yeah. That's what I thought Hampshire college was going to be like. I wish man, that would be so much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> um like that i think about that and i think about uh cruddy by linda berry also and like mm. could those become um movies and 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 if so like could i enjoy them and i think that i think the answer is probably no huh well, i i feel like a secret history could trend yeah been- but it might be it might be tough to enjoy also i'm speaking very subjectively you know like i don't i think the thing is once you love a book enough seeing the characters like in some form of the flesh can like um like fuck with the book for you you know like this is why i made this weird rule when i was like younger where i was like i'm never going to see the movie to kill a mockingbird because i like the book too much and i don't want to see these characters turned into like moving things Right. Which is stupid, and also in retrospect, the book is pretty stupid too. So I don't know what I'm, why I'm holding <laughs> on to that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. Like the secret history is, it's begging to be like a limited series, maybe you know. Yeah. But I yeah. have, I have such an idea of those characters and their faces in my head that I don't know that I could ever enjoy seeing somebody, um, you know, inhabit them. And then there are characters that I feel less precious about in other things, and I'm like, yeah, go for it. On that note about adaptations, I know that you're a massive Charles Williford fan, and especially like the Hoke Mosley novels. Yeah, yeah. Have Have you seen? I'm sure you've seen Miami Blues. Yeah, with Fred Ward. Yeah, yeah. What um, do you, uh, what's your take? It's fine. It's not. It's not Hoke to me um, at all. Yeah. Um, if I hadn't read the book, I'd be like, yeah, that was a pretty good like '80s pulp. But yeah, it's not really Hoke. Um, there was a Hulk miniseries, the, the, a pilot made at, at FX, like a few years ago, um, that starred Paul. That starred Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Oh wow. That's closer to me physically, but um, it never, it didn't, it didn't get picked up, and like it's impossible. I've tried so hard to find a way to watch it, and I've never been able to. Um, I, I I saw the film before I read the book. Uh, yeah. And yeah, re- I watched the film again. And yeah, it doesn't really hold up. I always kind of, I, I've, I thought of it, it would work as a series with like maybe Woody Harrelson playing Oak or something like that. That's interesting. Well, who, who would you imagine? Uh, Stephen Root, always. I picture Stephen Root. Oh yeah, he's, that would be fantastic. I think he'd be the, the best at it, yeah. But yeah, another thing about Miami Blues um, is uh, Alec Baldwin is not scary enough to play that, that villain, you know? Yeah, I think he's pretty good in it, but retroactively it's, knowing who he is now, it's a bit hard to, yeah, he didn't, he didn't work for me in it. Yeah. Um, and you know, there was recently an adaptation of the burnt orange heresy by yeah. Williford, yeah. but I, it looked like it was so unlike the book and it just, I don't know, Mick Jagger's in it. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't watch it. I had the Did same. you see it? No, I had the same feeling. I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the whole, the whole mostly universe is, is, is like, I don't, somebody needs to, 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 that's a character that I love that I would love that I want to see on screen. You know, it's different for some reason than like the secret history. Yeah. I I really do. I feel like those books could make, I think it probably would be better served to do a TV show for those, but I think so too. Yeah. The way they turned like, um, 
Elmore Leonard's character, Raylan Givens, into Justified, like that, that yeah. have a kind of ready-made. But it's, it's also like kind of fun to think about the reverse of what we're talking about, which is like novelizations of movies, which were kind of big. Yeah. I think bigger in the eighties, maybe, but like, I, I love, did you, did you read many novelizations? Yeah. Really this, uh, this, this came up, uh, this came up during Sam's as well, where I was obsessed with, I would get books for films. My parents wouldn't allow me to see. So oh, that's funny. Yeah. I had uh, the novelization of child's play three for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Holy um, shit. And I had, and I was also obsessed. I had the novelization of Spaceballs, which I read about a thousand times. Wow. Was it funny? I mean, I thought so, but I was, you know, a, a little, a little kid. What, what were yours? The two I remember the most um, were Aliens with an S. Uh, yeah, um, which I think was by Alan Dean Foster, who wrote like a lot of novelizations. Um, he was like the guy I think for movies like that, and that was a really good one. And um, uh, a Platoon, <laughs> the Oliver Stone oh, film. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I I love them both, man, because they like um, they would expand the universe, you know. Right. And did you read those books after you saw the film? Yeah, both of them were after. I think I think that was generally my mo. If I saw the film and I liked it, I would be like, I got to find the book, and um, it would be like an appendix to the movie in a way, you know. All right, so I want to do my my uh, final two um, closers. So the first question that I've been asking everybody is, um, who's your favorite Scott brother, Tony or Ridley? Yeah, I don't think it's really, I mean, if I have to pick, I guess I would say Ridley, but I think Ridley's pretty overrated too. Mm-hmm. I don't think Tony's overrated. I think Tony's kind of rated right on. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are movies by both of them. I mean, like Ridley has to win because he made um, Alien and Blade Runner. Like he just, those are, those are too, too canonical, too big, too like everything to not let him win mm-hmm. um, for me. Uh, but Tony, he's a dark horse, you know? I mean, The Hunger is, is incredible. And it's, I think it's probably first film, first film which is like, yeah. wow, to come out, yeah. out, out of the, Gate with that kind of like, you know, like really fully formed aesthetic and everything. Um, that opening sequence with Bauhaus is so cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then everything else for, by him kind of blends into one film for me. And that's, that doesn't mean I don't like it. Like if you look at, I think about like Top Gun or uh, uh, Days of Thunder or like The Last Boy Scout or even like True Romance. And like they all kind of look exactly the same, even though like they'll take place in like LA or like the South or like Detroit. His light is always kind of the same. It's weird when I when I watch his films. So I kind of feel like there's this one like Tony Scott universe. Um (laughs) and I don't know. I mean I think that they're I don't know, they're kind of ugly movies. Interesting. Um I don't, I don't know. I, I, I guess I have to go with Ridley, but then like Ridley is someone like, um, I feel like we were talking about somebody else who fell off really hard. I can't, Oh, Peter Jackson. But yeah, Ridley like made these things that are just mind blowing, but then it's just become such a mess in recent years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are things by him that are a little later that I sort of like, even though they're horrible, like Hannibal, you know, like uh-huh. Hannibal is yeah. 
it's total garbage, but like it's 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 kind of compelling. Um, yeah, I love I love Gladiator. You know, yeah, me too, me too. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, but then you get up to st- I think the real telling thing for him was when he made Robin Hood. Oh yeah, that's right. Remember that? Yeah. It was basically like, I'm going to take gladiator and put it in the dark ages, I guess, or something like that. And it was just very sort of like a cynical, like movie with no love or heart behind it. And then he kind of did the same thing. I felt like with Prometheus and with alien, um, whatever that last one was called, you know, the one with um, Danny McBride, I feel like the, the kind of like the heart is gone and he's just kind of um, it's, it's a lot of style and, and, and not a lot of substance. Yeah. And I, you know, though the worst thing you can always do with those kind of films like alien is explain away what the creature is. Absolutely. That's the problem with so many um, yeah. horror movies too. Like it's a little off topic, but like um, there's one I always think of. Um, I think it was like the conjuring or one of those like fairly recent, like last 10 years, like big horror movies, which like, I think I liked the conjuring just fine. But then when the end at the ending, it's always some like goth looking ghost lady who like has some tragic backstory and you like don't care anymore. So yeah, the less explained the better. Um, But I look back at his filmography um, last night because I was thinking about this and I, I, I like the Martian, but that's like, so that's so true to the, um, the book, that's a good adaptation of a novel. Like it's just basically a procedural, you know? And I think yeah. it's, I think it's entertaining enough, you know, like I felt, I felt invested enough in that when I watched it. Well, fair enough. Um, what did you think it was shit? I just, the whole, th- I didn't, Matt Damon's kind of like whole like witty. Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't like that? It, no, it drove me a little nuts. And once he, once he rocketed off into space, I left before he landed. Cause I didn't want to know if he, I wanted, I was hoping he died. I just wanted to imagine. That oh, he does. He did. He, he did. Oh, he does, does he really? <laughs> yeah. He, he explodes like in a huge, it's fucking brutal. You see like blood in space. Oh, wow. Okay. I should have stayed then. I was like, I I'm thought just, he was going to survive. So I'm I just, just walked out. I'm, I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm sorry. No, he has a happy ending kind of, but, um, yeah, like, so I, I love them both. And I love, um, I feel like I probably would have liked, like, in real life, like, hanging out with Tony Scott a lot more. Yeah. Um, I think Ridley feels, like, a little bit, like, rarefied. I mean, he's a sir. He's Sir Ridley Scott, you know? Yeah. But yeah. I think Tony, um, I mean, it's it's really tragic, but the fact that he, like, killed himself in San Pedro just makes me think that I would probably get along with him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I have the same <laughs> yeah. feeling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, and finally, name a film that is, it, it may have even already come up, I don't know, this has happened before too, but a film yeah. that is you, that is generally beloved by the world at large, but you c- just cannot stand. Yeah, you mentioned that you were going to ask me this, and it was actually hard to think of it, um, yeah. because I, like, I hate a lot of stuff, but like, a lot of the <laughs> stuff, that, a lot of stuff that I hate is like, everyone else hates it too, except for like, you know, dummies. Um <laughs> but then the answer was staring me right in the face. It's the biggest, it's, um, it's the Goonies. Oh, that's a I good despise, one. I despise the Goonies. I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> and I have really personal reasons and, and more like, you know, cultural studies, like wanky reasons, personal reasons. Um, I played the Goonies Nintendo game one day when I was really, really sick. Like when I was like, you know, like, you know, a kid, like 10 or 11 and so that Cindy Lauper song that's in the Goonies like repeats in like a MIDI form in oh, the yeah. game. And so if I hear that melody, I've want to vomit like right away. 
it's like a sense like a sense memory yeah but then beyond that um i mean the goonies is like um i mean it's there's a lot of problems with it but i'll just kind of like make it real quick um it's supposed to be about class warfare. Like these are the poor kids versus the rich kids. They're always referring to things as like rich stuff, like, you know, yeah. money and jewels or rich stuff. Um, these kids aren't, they don't look very poor to me. Like they live in a really cool Victorian house by the ocean. Um, you know, like Corey Feldman has like a brand new purple rain shirt and like a members only jacket. Like that shit. I, I couldn't get that when I was a kid and I was the same age. Like that's expensive shit. Um, they have, a, they have, they bring a housekeeper over or like who only speaks Spanish or they all abuse. Like these are not poor kids. These are little, these are not fucking poor kids. Um, secondly, they're all screaming the whole time at each other. Like it's just like yelling, yelling, yelling. There's not a lot of dialogue that actually yeah. you can hear. They're all just yelling. Um, and then there's this other thing that kind of like was a, was going on a lot with Spielberg in the early to mid eighties, I think, which is there's this almost like there's this adoration of like pre adolescent boys that feels like pedophilic to me. You know, <laughs> it's like, they're so gorgeous and like, so full of promise and so fun. And they have these you know relationships that are so intimate and it just feels a little bit Nambla to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, one little thing more is, you know, I, I, I went and read a little behind the scenes stuff um, when I thought of the Goonies and um, it turns out that the Goonies is kind of like poltergeist in that. Spielberg didn't direct it, but he kind of did direct it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so Poltergeist was Toby Hooper and Goonies was Richard Donner, but apparently Spielberg was there just kind of like getting in their way and like running the show. And they were too cowed because it was Spielberg to be like, dude, this is my set. So yeah. I, I hate that like ghost directing thing too. I think that's really shitty. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the Goonies, fuck the Goonies. Love that. <laughs> um, and if you were to suggest instead in lieu of the Goonies, <laughs> Yeah. What would be a film to watch? Streetwise by Marilyn Mark and Martin Bell. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's a, good that's a movie about, that's about class warfare. That's about real disadvantaged kids. And they're both in the Pacific Northwest. That's great. Do you want to talk <laughs> a little, any, do you want to say anything else about Streetwise? Um, but the photographer Marilyn Mark did a story, I think for life magazine about these kids who lived on the street in Seattle. Like I think mostly around the Pike place market in the uh, early eighties. And then she brought um, Martin Bell. I don't know if he was her boyfriend or just her friend or what, but he was a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. She's like, we have to go make a movie about these kids. So they went back and did it. And it's basically about a group of kids who are tragically young, like fucking 11, 12, up to like maybe 16-ish or something. And they're living on the street. They're drug addicts. They're prostitutes. Um, and it's really intimate with them. It's really sympathetic to them. Um and then, but beyond all that, in a voyeuristic sense, it's a very beautiful film. You know, the kids are very charismatic and very compelling. And even though there's a lot of tragedy, there's a lot of like transcendent, like beautiful moments in it too. Um, it's, it's like, it's really beautiful. Um, and then also if somebody watches that and wants to see more, there's this really cool thing, which is that, you know, the main character of Streetwise is a, is a young, a girl named Tiny. Um, and Martin Bell and Marilyn Mark went back and made a, you know, I think a couple more, if not just one film with Tiny years later. Um, so you can like follow her life. And eventually she's like living in a trailer park. She's got like 10 kids. She's, you know, pretty unhealthy, like pretty, pretty grossly obese, but she's still this really beautiful person. Um, it's just, it's really, it's, it's great stuff. I think, I think all that is on the Criterion app too now. 
There's wow, a plug for that. I didn't know about those those follow up ones. Oh, dude, what are those? What, like, what are those called? It's just called Tiny something with Tiny, like Tiny right. something. Um, okay, I'll include it in the notes. It's uh, yeah, like watch. I would like prioritize watching that. It's like um, it's fantastic. Well, so yeah, skip the Goonies. Watch Watch Streetwise, <laughs> especially if you're like 10, 10 or eleven years old. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's that. Another episode of Twenty Four Hour Video in the books. Oh yeah. Um, I want to thank Jesse for being my guest. It was really, really fun to talk to him. Um, I could have done it forever. In fact, I, I DM'd him after the interview saying, thanks for doing it. I could have done that for hours. And he said, thank you. Uh, and I think he said something like, I thought we were going to talk about obscure foreign films, but we spent the whole time talking about Grease 2 and Showgirls. <laughs> um and I wanted to, immediately I said, let's just get on and talk more. I want to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you about obscure foreign films. And then he told me that was cheating. So I, I, I as the podcast guru, I deferred to him. But we will be talking again, and I will make him talk about obscure foreign films. And it will be great. If you want to hear more from Jesse, as I'm sure you probably do after this, uh, stop number one should be the Apology Podcast. It's honestly my favorite podcast at the moment. And... I couldn't recommend it higher. Make sure you have a piece of paper with you because there's just so many good book recommendations that happen every episode. You can find it anywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, Apology Magazine. You can get that wherever fine books and magazines are sold. You can get it online. And you can keep up with Jesse and what's going on with Apology at apology underscore zine on Instagram. He's selling some good merch right now. I just got myself a Stephen King t-shirt. And as you heard, we covered a lot of ground. It wasn't all just Showgirls in Greece, too. And so there's a lot of show notes. They're going to be up on my webpage, jasongreen.org. That's Jason with a Y and Green with no E at the end. So go there. There will be a ton of links uh, about all the stuff we talked about. I actually was able to find an old commercial for a wall-to-wall sound and video, which is Jesse's old video story he talked about. It's pretty cool. You check it out there. As always, the music is written and performed by Nicholas Milheiser with vocal cue from Nancy Wong. I cut this episode together myself after deleting the entire thing the first time, and spoiler alert, it's not that much fun. So make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it give it them give it some thumbs up and some stars. Pass it around, tell your friends. Stick it up your butt. You're vaccinated. You can do stuff like that. You can follow us on Instagram at 24 hour video. That's all letters, no numbers at 24 hour video. Next episode is going to be part one of an epic two-part interview with James Murphy of LCD Sound System. I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are too. I think it's a really great one. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening and love you guys. This is 24 hour video.